Father, here we are, weak, frail, sinful human beings. Father, you know my own lack, my own need. I just desperately want for your word to speak. Because otherwise, this time I know won't be profitable or valuable to my friends who've gathered here. So would you speak to them through your word? Would you work in a transformational way in our hearts? Would you set our sights a little bit higher on Jesus and what you have in store for each of our lives? Thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Have you ever had an investment that went really, really well? Have you ever had an investment that went really, really well on paper, but that then you never saw the realization of it? Here, let me explain what I mean. Back when I was at La Sierra University uh, taking business, during the summer I was working with a friend, and as we were working, he told me, you know, because he knew I was really into investing, I was hoping to be a millionaire, I had all these lofty goals for my life that had to do with money especially, Um, and you can tell that didn't come true because here I am today, but I'm actually really thankful for that. What he told me, he said, you know, I invested in this stock when it was really, really low in price. He said, and it went up to over $35,000 into my college mind. My mind was just blown. $35,000? Are you serious? You are wealthy. This is incredible. I know that's not that much money maybe to you, but to me, it's a lot. And they said, well, here's the thing. The stock's back down lower than it was when I first bought it now. Are you serious? You lost $35,000 in this investment? This is horrendous. He said, well, it's okay. It was never really mine anyway. It was just on paper that I had that gain. I wasn't okay with that answer. Uh, Maybe that's because I don't understand money very well. But turn with me in the Bible to a place where Jesus talks about money. And, And this is important for us to grasp as we think about the things that we have dwelt upon for a year. Did you know that we have been in Revelation 13 and 14 for about a year now? Did you know that there was that much there to talk about? There's that much of the Bible that needs to be unpacked to focus on these last day messages, the three angels' messages, and about the mark of the beast and these types of things. Uh, In order to see God's love revealed in these things, I believe we have to recognize all of Scripture meeting in these passages. Well, as we continue in this third angel's message, we're going to look today at a story Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. So go with me to Luke chapter 16, and we're going to go to verse 13. Now you remember that the final crisis in Revelation chapter 13, it says that it's going to come down to people not being able to buy or sell. It's a financial crisis in the end. And the third angel's message says that those who worship the beast, whoever receives his mark, is going to end up experiencing his wrath. And we've been unpacking what that looks like over a number of weeks. I think we've had about five sermons talking about what that looks like. uh, That has been helpful for me as I've studied it. And hopefully you've gotten a little glimmer of God's love in this terminology of wrath. Because we have to remember that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God's wrath is entirely different than ours. It is not different from his love, his burning hot love for you. So Luke chapter 16, Jesus says this, verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth or mammon or money. You can't serve both God and money, Jesus says. Do you guys agree this morning? Amen. You're followers of Jesus. Well, notice what the crowd around him thinks of this. Now, 
he's saying this more pointedly because he's just given another parable that's parallel to the story that we're about to look at, uh, talking about an unrighteous steward who uses his money in order to provide a dwelling place for himself. And he says, we should take careful count of our own resources in using them for eternal good. Well, look at verse 14. The Pharisees are listening in and, and they hear Jesus talking about money. Now, what did Jesus look like? What are some characteristics of what you would see from a human perspective looking at Jesus? What type of person was he? Any, any descriptions? What was it? Poor. He said, I have no place to lay my head. He, didn't, he was homeless. Lived at a friend's house a lot of the time in Capernaum at Peter's house. Other times he just had no place to live, lay his head. Anything else? Concerned? Yeah, he was concerned about people's salvation. Talking about physically what he was like. He was a carpenter, right? His occupation was carpentry. Where was he from? Nazareth. You remember one of his disciples said, can anything good come from Nazareth? That place? He was from Galilee, not from Judea where the wealthy, the elite, the powerful lived. And here comes this man having all of this teaching. And here he comes with the audacity to talk about money. It's kind of like a pastor standing up and talking about money. Like, what does he know? He doesn't have any. (laughs) Right? Look at what he says, verse 14. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him. They scoffed at him. They thought he didn't know what he was talking about. And they wanted to make that known to the crowd around them. Jesus is experiencing derision for his teaching about money. Verse 15, And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Since, you know, you may feel like you have it all together. You may feel like you have an understanding. You actually think that, that you uh, are blessed and that's why you have wealth and that you're able to just live your life the way that you want to live it because this is the blessing of God. But I'm here to tell you that the things you think are pleasing to God are actually an abomination in His sight. The things that you're all about, God is not all about. So let's jump into the story that he uses to illustrate these exact principles. Starting in verse 19. Now this is a fascinating story that, honestly, I often just kind of skim over and keep going when I get to it. Because there's some confusing parts to it. Notice how it starts. There was a certain rich man. It's important how it starts. There was a certain man. Now, if you look back, you can see in chapter 16, verse 1, where it says there was... A certain rich man. That is a parable of the unjust steward. A lot of titles say that. A certain rich man, chapter 16, verse 1. If you look back at chapter 15 and verse 11, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son, it starts off with a certain man had two sons. This is one of the ways that Jesus would introduce parables or stories. And so as he introduces this story, he says a certain, what type of man? Rich man who was clothed in purple. Purple being this clothing that was difficult to get, uh, that was the, the, the clothing of royalty, and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. He had all that he wanted to eat, everything that he could want, every good thing this man had access to because of his money and his power. Verse 20. But there was a certain beggar. 
Notice how it introduces him. Beggar. The opposite of the rich man who's full every day, who has all that he wants every day. This person is in need and want, wanting something that is lacking in their life. A certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. This is a miserable person who is sick, has full of sores, some sort of, of disease is, is ravaging this person's body. And to the Jew, that meant that they had the curse of God upon them because didn't God say that if you follow me properly, none of these diseases will be upon you? And here's somebody with sores covering their body. Obviously, there's something they've done wrong. A certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his, what does it say? At his gate. He's, there's, there's something that he's laid at, and that is the gate of the rich man. So you have the gate of the rich man, which, what are gates for? Why does a home have a gate? To restrict who can come and go, to keep people out. Let me tell you a quick story that, that uh, I experienced that I had with a gate. So back two weeks ago, there's this, this uh, Motel 6 in Paso that's been converted into housing for people in our community that has enabled a lot of people to have a warm place to sleep. And part of it is permanent housing. So two weeks ago, I go to visit a friend there who's not answering his phone who I'm concerned about. And as I go to visit him, always before I was able to waltz right up, walk and knock on his door in the, at the old Motel 6. I got to the one side of the Motel 6 and there's this massive black gate there. And I'm like, huh. That's okay. I know that there's a lot of ways into this Motel 6. So I walked around the office and I walked around to the other side. Another massive gate going all the way around, all the way around to where the pools are and then around that way. I was like, okay, but they wouldn't gate off the very back of this hotel too, would they? You walk around to the other side and there's another gate there. Plus on it, it says no trespassing and anybody that comes without being escorted by a tenant is going to be trespassing. And so I'm like, okay, I get the point. I'm going home. The gate stopped me from getting in. And that's what you find here in the story. He is laid at the gate of the rich man. The gate is keeping him from having access to what the rich man has. And what is it that the rich man has? Verse 21, the, the beggar was desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. He's, he's not asking not asking for the rich man to sacrifice any of his own food. He's saying, just, I just want some crumbs. I, I just want some, whatever falls off your table. Couldn't, couldn't I have that? Just, just the things you're throwing away, the food you're wasting. Couldn't I just have that? Moreover, the dogs came and licked his swords. Now, in our time, we look at dogs. And we think that that might be a good thing. There's a dog comforting him. And that's one possible interpretation. But the other is that dogs were looked at as scavengers. They're not very positively looked at in the Bible. In fact, foreigners were called dogs. You remember the whole exchange between Jesus and the Canaanite woman back in Matthew chapter 15? And how he's portraying the common understanding about Gentiles. And she's called a dog. And she says, but even the, the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And Jesus immediately responds to that and heals her and demonstrates to his disciples how much he cares about her. But here, we get the idea that things are just getting more and more miserable 
for this poor beggar who is laid at the rich man's gate. Now, why was he lying at the rich man's gate and not at the hospital? Any idea? There was no hospitals. You know when hospitals came into existence? It was like, I think the third century or something like that. Christians got together and they started providing care facilities. And eventually that became this amazing hospital system that we have. Well, you may have disagreement with that. But anyway, with the hospital system that we have today where people who are sick can go to get treated, whether or not they have the funds to be treated, they can end up going and getting treatment. So that wasn't the case in this day. And this sick man, this poor man, this beggar who is lacking, who is longing for a crumb from the rich man's table, he's been laid at the gate because in this time, if you wanted to be cared for, you needed to find somebody wealthy who could take care of you. And so somebody was kind enough to say, well, we'll just drag him over here and we'll lay him at the gate and hopefully the rich man will take care of him. Now here's the question. Does... Does the rich man actively do something wrong to this individual? He he doesn't go and drag him off. Uh, The rich man doesn't uh, say anything hurtful to him. He doesn't say to the authorities, why is this filthy person at my gate? Get this eyesore out of here. I can't stand this. The rich man's okay with him being there. If it somehow brings him comfort to be laying at his gate, He's all right with that. He lets him stay laying right there at his gate with sores and everything. Maybe that at least speaks something for the rich man. He's got a little, that's fine, just let him lay there. That's okay. I'll let him lay outside my gate. But notice what happens. Jesus is going somewhere with this. Verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angel to Abraham's bosom. Bosom being Uh, the the chest cavity of, of Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So so the picture of the story that Jesus gives is that, that suddenly everything changes. In a moment, the man who was only a steward of all the wealth, of all the food, of everything that he had, but he didn't realize that he was just a steward who was using it for himself. In a moment when death struck, it was all gone. It was no longer his. And he ends up in a place called Hades, which is used in the Bible to describe the grave. He's buried, it says. He's buried in the grave. But what happens as he's in the grave? It says he lifts up his eyes. Okay, so this gives a picture not of a disembodied spirit, but of somebody that's actually using their eyes to look up and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, and it says he's there in torments. So let's, let's continue in verse 24. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. What sticks out to you about this? Who's he praying to mercy for? To Jesus? The thief on the cross in the last hour said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, yeah, you got it. But who is he praying to? Who is he asking for mercy? Father Abraham. He's 
has relied for his salvation upon a connection to these theological tenets that were taught that if you were a descendant of Abraham and you're blessed by God, you're going to end up in the good place. And he's not there. And so what does he do? He cries out to Abraham. Now here's the fascinating thing. Some people use this story to say that the reality is that in the end, the poor are going to end up in heaven. Because Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And the rich are not going to end up in heaven. And so people take vows of poverty. And they determine that they're going to do whatever it takes to have no money so that they can be in heaven. From what we've read so far, how could you say that that's not what Jesus meant to teach here? Who's in heaven besides Lazarus? Abraham. Was Abraham poor? Did he take a vow of poverty? No. (laughs) He was extremely wealthy. Genesis talks about the wealth that he had. But what did he do with his wealth? When you have strangers wandering by, he's running out to get them and he pulls them in and he says, here, I'll, I'll slay the fatted calf and I'll bring the biggest feast out for you. Please come stay at my house. When he rescues Sodom, he refuses to take any of their goods. He wasn't gaining anything by injustice. His wealth was given by the blessing of God and he shared it freely with a thousand men that lived with him in a camp. He was a generous, generous person. There's there's a difference that can be had with wealth. Wealth can be used for selfish means like the rich man or wealth can be used to impact the world. And Jesus, who actually had incredible wisdom about wealth, is giving the description of what we need on this planet and that is wealthy people who recognize that they are stewards of what God has given them. So he's praying to Abraham, have mercy on me. What does this tell us about his picture of God? He has this distant picture of God. God isn't somebody that he can approach as a friend. He thinks that he needs to approach God for mercy through somebody else. And sadly, that crept into the Christian religion where it was thought, hey, I need the righteousness of of, of Paul or Peter or this saint or that saint. And and maybe they can add something to, to enable me to come to God. And you know that's trickled down to our day, even for those who don't pray to saints. There are those today who are like, hey, pastor, can you pray for this person? Well, let's pray together about it. No, I just want you to pray because when you pray, something happens. That's not the picture. God wants for you and me to come to him as his friends, to open our hearts as to a friend. That's the reality of what prayer is all about. But this man doesn't recognize that God is his friend. And he's pleading for mercy. Now, what does he want Abraham to do? I mean, what does he want Lazarus to do? Sorry, or Abraham to do. Yeah, that was the question. Send Lazarus. Now, do you see what is taking place? Has this man changed at all? You see that the man who wouldn't help Lazarus when he was laying by his gate still sees society operating on a uh, a power over people basis. He says, Abraham... Command that guy, Lazarus, to come here and dip his finger. He doesn't address Lazarus. He doesn't think Lazarus is important. His view of the value of Lazarus has not changed except for the fact that maybe Abraham could order him around and send him to come dip his finger in the water and bring him a little little bit of satiation in the torment. He hasn't changed. And that's going to be the reality of hell and heaven. 
There will be those who want nothing to do with heaven because their hearts are unchangeable. They have settled into a system of selfishness that is incompatible with heaven, and heaven would be to them infinite torture. And so they end up separated from God. So he asks for Lazarus. Now here's the thing. So he's looking at Lazarus, right, as, as a servant as the one that, that Abraham can order around, that could come serve him, even in hell. Like, hey, bring, just have Lazarus serve me here in hell. But here's the amazing thing. Of all of Jesus' parables, this is the only one that names a main character. And his name is Lazarus. Did you notice at the beginning, it's a certain rich man. The one that that we should know his name because he was the rich man. He wore purple. He fared sumptuously every day. He's the one that should have gone down in history. That He's the people that we talk about today. Not Not to defame any wealthy people today, but the majority of people that we could say a name here and everybody would instantly know who I'm talking about in, in society, most of them have massive amounts of wealth. But the poor beggars... They're on the streets in San Luis Obispo and Paso Robles and Los Angeles and San Francisco. I challenge you to name one of them to me today. Do we know them? Do we know their name? Jesus knows their name. Thank you, Leonard. I heard a name. (laughs) Jesus knows their name. And the beautiful thing is the name is Lazarus, which just so happens to be the Greek name for Eliezer, who happened to be the most trustworthy servant of Abraham his closest one that he wanted to be like his son. And the name Eliezer means God is my help. You see, the rich man's looking to Abraham. The rich man's looking to satisfy himself in a million different ways. He's looking to what he can provide. But the, the poor beggar who lays there at the gate, he doesn't, it doesn't tell us that he says, says anything, but his name tells us something. He's looking to God and God alone for his help. And those are the ones who are saved in the end, who recognize in Jesus the only friend that they have to have, the one that is their, their sole helper in this world. So his name is Lazarus. Uh, let's continue. Oh, it says, for I am tormented in this flame. A quick detour. Tormented uh, is a fascinating word. It's used four times, both this word and its cognates in the New Testament. And I was reading an article in Ministry Magazine, a great magazine to, to read about biblical topics. And it says, the rich man in Hades experiences torment or anguish. The Greek adunomai and the cognate adune are used four other times in the New Testament. And listen what they're to, used to refer to. To refer to emotional anguish, grief, and sorrow. And here's the examples. You remember Mary when she is longing for her, when she loses Jesus in the temple and she's searching for him for three days and she comes to the temple, she says, son, why did you do this to me? We anxiously searched for you. The anxiety that Mary felt over losing her child is what this man is experiencing in Hades. Uh, another good example that has to do with what we're talking about today is 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. The other ones have to do with Paul and the sorrow either he had or people had about him. But 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 
The, the same torment, the word that's translated into torment or anguish, here in Luke 16, 24, is the word for the sorrows that come from a love of money. The, this is a reality that is experienced both on this planet and Jesus wants us to know that in the reality when we face Jesus face to face and we experience the fiery reality of who he is and what his unquenchable love is like, in that moment, the sorrow and torment that we will feel over our selfishness for having used money solely for self will be like torment in that moment. Now I can tell you that we could look at other places in Jesus' writings, or Jesus' teachings. We could look at, at Matthew chapter 12, verses 49 and 50, where he tells at the end of a parable about how they'll be gathered together and they will be thrown into the fire at the end of the age. So when are people, according to Jesus, thrown into the fire? At the end of the age. So as we read this story, and we see people with bodies being experiencing physical torment which is especially distinguished in the bible actually as anguish and sorrow really internal torment i should say torment of soul we can know that this is talking about the end of the age based upon what jesus said but here's the thing i as a seventh day adventist are really quick to step in and want to tell you that I want, I want that to be what the rest of our sermon is about here. I want, I want for us to now break down in the Bible how the fact is this is what happens when you die. And I think that that's important to understand. But Jesus tells this story without doing that in detail. He does give us one important point at the end on that. But Jesus is not focused on that. So here's a question for you. Those of you who are not Seventh-day Adventists, I am so glad that you joined us today. You are always welcome to join us here today. But I'm asking you Seventh-day Adventists, committed Seventh-day Adventists, who know what we believe, is it more important to you that you tell your neighbor about what happens when they die, or is it more important that you tell them how to treat the poor around them? Which is more important? How to treat the poor around them? You've been listening to Jesus, haven't you? That's fantastic. You guys understand what we believe better than I do. Because Jesus explicitly uses this story, and, and I love how Christ's object lessons breaks this down, page 263. It says, in this parable, Christ was meeting the people on their own ground. This is what they believe, and we have this from rabbinic tradition. They believed you went to three different places when you died, and that instantly you were transported to different things like this, and they had similar stories to what we're reading right now. The doctrine of a conscious state of existence between death and the resurrection was held by many of those who were listening to Christ's words. The Savior knew of their ideas, and he framed his parables so as to inculcate important truths through these preconceived opinions. He's got important truths to get across, and so he says, let them have those preconceived opinions for now, because I've got something more important to teach them. He held up before his hearers a mirror wherein they might see themselves in their true relation to God. He used the prevailing opinion to convey the idea he wished to make prominent to all that no man is valued for his possessions. For all he has, has belongs to him only as lent by the Lord. A misuse of these gifts will place him below the poorest and most afflicted man who loves God and trusts in him. Christ Object Lessons, page 263. Uh, he needed to get something across to the Pharisees, to others. And so in this moment, his cry for them was that 
whatever you believe about what happens when you die, what matters the most is how you treat the least of these. The ones who are lying at your gate. Our belief system, our theology has to lead us to a practical action loving the people around us. And if it does not, then what we believe is not going to help us in the end. Matthew 25 makes that really clear. Jesus will say to us in the very final judgment, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. So we continue. Verse 26, 25 gives us this, this picture of why this is happening. It says, but Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things. Now where did Lazarus, some of Lazarus' evil things come from? The neglect that could have been satisfied by the rich man. And in that moment, this rich man is, is throwing boomerangs like we talked about a couple weeks ago. Tossing boomerangs out. And in the end, God has to let us catch our boomerangs. Let those choices come back to us. And he says, according to their deeds, let it be done to them. Let these things happen to them just as they have acted. So remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Now you are experiencing exactly what you were giving to Lazarus. It's going to be heaped back on us exactly as we do to others unless we turn to Jesus in repentance. And then verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. It's impossible to, to pass between these two. The moment of the choice has passed. Why is this? Well, we see this evidenced in the way that the rich man is acting. He's praying to Abraham. He's demanding for Lazarus to be the servant, to come and serve him. Has he changed at all? He's still got the same heart. The same actions are coming out in him. And the great gulf that is separating him from eternal bliss is in his own heart. He set up a gate. And because he had set up that gate, that wall between him and those who are in need around him, be careful of any system anywhere that sets up barriers from people coming to get help. Because he had set up walls, Rather than to help people in need, he's reaping the same. And now he's longing to help. He's longing to receive help, and he's unable to receive it himself. I love how uh, Christ Object Lessons breaks down this point. It says, The closing scenes of this earth's history are portrayed in the closing of the rich man's history. This is page 269 again. The rich man claimed to be a son of Abraham, but he was separated from Abraham by an impassable gulf, a character wrongly developed. It's the choices that I make today and how I treat you and how you treat me. God help me. I need His mercy and grace that is settling my eternal destiny. And in that day, God's going to say, okay, you can have what you chose. You can reap what you have sown. Here is the, the results of your choices. He goes on to describe how um, if only the rich man had recognized that his goods were to be used to minister to the poor around him. But notice how the rich man goes on in verse 28, for, then he, or 27. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Send Lazarus. 
that servant, send him to my, uh, my, brother, my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. What is he saying about what God has revealed so far to his brothers? He's pleading with Abraham to, to send a man from the dead in order to convince them of what the afterlife looks like. And he's saying what God has already revealed to them is not enough. God, you haven't given enough light. You haven't shared enough. You've got to give them more. And he's in effect accusing God of not having given him enough information. If I had known more, I myself would have been willing uh, to, to repent. But notice Notice where Abraham points in verse 29. Abraham said to them, said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let, let them go back to the Old Testament, to Moses and the prophets, to the, the whole Old Testament. Let them go back to that. And if they listen to that, they're going to be okay. Did you know how much... The Bible talks about the poor and those who are in need around us, those who are lacking in any way. Jesus was able to summarize it by saying, do unto others as you would have others do unto you and thus fulfill the law and the prophets. This is absolutely what it's all about. I've been building a list myself as I go through. Every time it talks about the poor, every time it talks about the fatherless, the widow, I encourage you to do the same when you read through the Bible. My list is growing exponentially. And, and you'll actually find that people say there's probably 2,000 verses just that talk about the poor. And yet it's easy for us to think that this isn't the most crucial thing that our theology lead us to practically impact the lives of people around us. I could give you some examples. You want me to read 2,000 verses to you right now? You're like, are you serious? It's going to be 90 degrees later today. Are we Let's just read one. Psalm 41, verse 1. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. If only he had considered the poor man who was lying at his gate, God would have been able to help him in his time of trouble. That's what God calls us to. Proverbs 31, verse 9. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. And the list goes on and on and on. Okay, one more. This is really good. Leviticus 25, verse 35, If any of your fellow Israelites become poor or are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so they can continue to live among you. <laughs> help absolutely everybody. If your brother falls into poverty, help them out just the way that you'd help that random foreigner who came to your town and you would assist him just like Abraham did. That's why Jesus was able to say to the Pharisees, You say that you have Abraham for your father? then do the works that Abraham did. Love the people around you like Abraham did. It's our calling. The final verse here, or final two verses in Luke 16, verse 30 says, And he said, No father, Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If they could just see this miraculous thing, we're suddenly like, ah, this guy was resurrected. He's coming back and he's telling us this person has appeared from the dead. Then they'll believe it. Verse 31, But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. You see, it's obvious that the rich man doesn't know Moses and the prophets because you know what the Moses said about talking with the dead? Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10, There shall not be found among you anyone who 
basically converses or, or calls up the dead, verses 10 and 11. That, that these should be destroyed from among you, for these are an abomination, it goes on to say. So, so Jesus makes one thing crucially clear here, and that is there is to be no conversation with the afterlife. That absolutely cannot happen. So in this story, he uses the story and he makes driving home this point about how we treat those who are in need and that we need to rely on the law and the prophets. And he says, by the way, it's not going to help if somebody is resurrected, if somebody comes back from the dead. And uh, we won't go into detail about all of that, but you look at the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was resurrected not long after this. And interestingly enough, Jesus names this guy Lazarus. And it was Lazarus' resurrection that led to an intensification of Jesus being led to the cross by the Pharisees. They decided to put him to death because he'd resurrected Lazarus. And it was too much for them to handle. In fact, they decided that they were going to kill Lazarus. When we've hardened our hearts, an inseparable gulf has happened between us and God. And that separation will destroy us in the end. But God invites us to something better than that. Christ Object Lessons uh, describes it like this. Talking about what the rich man could have done. The one who was abundantly able to relieve the sufferings of his fellow creature lived to himself as many live today. There are today, close beside us, many who are hungry, naked, and homeless. A neglect to impart of our means to these needy suffering ones places upon us a burden of guilt which we shall one day fear to meet. All covetousness is condemned as idolatry. All selfishness, indulgence, is an offense in God's sight. But the opposite of that is just as true. It's delightful to God when you open up of your resources, when you open up of your time, when you take time to get to know the people who are in need around you, the beggars around you. And they don't just have to be in financial need. Maybe they're in need of the talents you have, the skills that you have. In closing, something happened uh, about a month ago. We were at a farm Bible study. And at that farm Bible study, we had uh, a friend of our church, Aurora, was there telling us about this awesome ministry that she does called Hope and Faith, where she goes down into the riverbed in Paso Robles and they give out burritos and she was telling us the difference that it makes in people's lives they do this on saturday mornings and on wednesday mornings and as she's unpacking this to us at at, at a farm bible study suddenly one of us who had resources to offer all of us actually had resources to offer but one of us was smart enough in that moment to offer something (laughs) steve raises his hand he's like how many burritos do you need she said 72 I was like, okay, nobody's going to make 72 burritos. Steve said, okay, sign me up. And he said, the last Friday of September, I'm making 72 burritos for you to take out. I'll make them on Friday, and you take them out on Saturday. And so last Friday, um, he was there, Janelle was there, and Victoria was there working away making them. And how did it make you feel afterwards, Victoria? I heard it, I heard it encouraged you a lot. <laughs> really encouraging. You weren't sure if you wanted to at first, right? But when you did, it lifted you up to serve, to help. Uh, Matt was there helping as well. What an awesome opportunity because you know what I heard? Uh, I think it was I went to the hospital to pray for a friend of Aurora's who's in ICU who just passed away, pray for their family. Um, I went to pray for them, and she told me, she said, look what happened. She said, on Wednesday you know, they got in Steve's, uh, all of your burritos, the, the ones that you that made it, they got those burritos 
on Saturday morning. Wednesday morning, we go out to give out burritos. And as we give out the burritos, they're like, where are those good burritos? Where are those good burritos that we got? And some of them were swearing that they were homemade tortillas, that they were just incredible. Because normally what they have to do is run to Costco and get frozen burritos that they warm up. And these were homemade, made with love burritos. And they made a difference to some people that live a couple miles up there in the riverbed. It made a difference in their lives. Do you want to help? Do you want to serve? Do you want to make a difference? I want to invite you to something practical today. We're going to have a a song to listen to that I hope you're becoming familiar with. It's becoming something that's meaningful to me. But as you listen to this song, if you have a cell phone, I want to invite you to take it out and to text, if you like, to be involved. Text the, the, the word serve to the church phone number, 805-434-1710. And that'll put you on a list because... We've had a a great community service leader who's been helping us out, but we're about to have a new nominating committee list, and we're going to ask for your approval of a new community services leader because the other one wanted to move on to serving in other capacities, Lisa Christerna. And she said, but the thing is, she knows a lot about helping people from the work that she does. She said, but I I need help. I need people to help me in doing this. If we're really going to impact our community, I need help. If you text this, when we hear that there's need, We'll just send out a message and say, hey, would you be available to help and serve at this time? Or there's other things that come up all the time. We'll get a call on the phone that somebody's saying, hey, I need help moving. Or I need, uh, somebody needs help moving tomorrow morning. The Kurtz family needs that. People who need help with a ver- variety of things are often calling the church. So if you'd like to be involved in that, as we listen to this song, God of the Poor, I just want to invite you to text SERVE to our church phone number, 805-434-1710. And this isn't saying when or how. It's just saying that you want the information to be able to serve. And if you don't text, we have a sign-up sheet for you that you can do on your way out. It's on the table uh, as you exit. As we close with prayer, I just want to invite you to bow your heads and just to to ask that God might might reveal to you any gates. Maybe, Maybe this message wasn't for you. It was for me. But maybe God can reveal to you any gates or any Lazaruses in your life that, that need to be helped and what the barriers are between you and them. Father in heaven, would you open my eyes, would you open our eyes to the Lazaruses that are all around us, the people who are in desperate need. And Father, I don't know what the barriers are, whether it's just that we haven't taken a, a walk through the areas where they dwell lately. Or, or maybe we've just closed our eyes to what's going on in, in the poor countries around this world that desperately need more help. Father, I pray, whatever it is, whatever gates are in my life, in our life, that right now you'd point those out to us. Father, thank you that you knew Lazarus by name. And I pray that you would reveal to us, by name, the people around us that need our help, whatever it is that we can offer them. Father, may this not be our prayer just right now, but may it be our constant prayer. Help us to remember the urgency with which you presented this to thousand years ago that this is about our eternal destiny the choice that we make each and every day with our pocketbook with our free time 
with any resource that we have, whether it's for us or for others, that choice is going to react upon us in the end. And Father, may we be changed as we look to the God who for our sakes was made poor so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. God, would you be our help? We're all Lazaruses. Thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.